This interview is brought to you by Cambridge University Press. Please visit Cambridge at www.cambridge.org. There you can find their entire catalog of books. And, of course, you can buy them there as well. So please visit the press today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the Internet looking for interesting books, and we interview the authors of those books. Uh, This week I really happened upon a very, very interesting book um, by Benjamin Radcliffe, and we have him today on the show, called The Political Economy of Human Happiness, How Voters' Choices Determine the Quality of Life. I I, um, had never read a book uh, of this type that is as rigorous as this one. And that's something I really liked about it. Um, ben does not shy away from showing us what he learned. And, and again, uh, show your work is an important thing in, in I think, um, a presentation such as this. Particularly important in, uh, in, in his presentation because he has something I would say is relatively controversial uh, to say. Uh, it's not as controversial once you look at the data which is good, so he doesn't have to bear the weight of it, the data does, but still, as we, as we, as we, as we will say in, in the context of the interview or in the course of the interview, there is a punchline here, and it's a really interesting one. So, Ben, thank you for writing the book, and thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself to kick things off? Sure. Um, I'm a professor of political science. I teach at the University of Notre Dame, where I've spent most of my academic career. I've been there since 1991. Um, right now, I'm on a Fulbright, Fulbright Fellowship in the Netherlands at, some, at an institute called the Roosevelt Study Center. My early work was very conventional, mainstream behavioral political science, the kind of thing I was trained to do in graduate school that appears in mainstream journals and so on, on elections and public policy and participation and democratic theory and so on. Uh, a dozen or so years ago, I, I shifted gears a bit and, and turned towards what was at that time a very strange endeavor, which was um, the social scientific study of, of human happiness. You know, a, a decade and more on, that's become a you know very mainstream, very huge, multidisciplinary research program that, that everyone is uh, you know now interested in. Um, so I feel sort of vindicated in having made that <laughs> at the time risky choice. Uh, you know, as a political scientist, my my work naturally focuses within that context on the, on the connections between political outcomes and human happiness, and then the the sort of obvious um, political outcomes that are the most important are, are public policies, the things that that governments do. Um, hence the the title of the book. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that. That's yes. Uh, human happiness is now it's a big thing. It's a big and controversial thing, big and controversial subject. Um, let, let me ask you this. Why did you decide to write this book? Uh, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of reasons. Some of them are sort of, of small and personal and, and professional. In, in part, I'd followed the model, as I alluded to a moment ago, of, of doing what they told me to do in graduate school, which is, <laughs> you know, which is to, 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 to sit in my office and in the, in the scholarly, gnome-like way, crunch out article after article for mainstream professional political science journals and, that are, you know, that, which I think have value and that are, you know, designed to be, to be scientific in the, in, the narrow sense of accumulating political science knowledge within highly narrow literatures designed to be read only by another hundred people within that particular um, area. Um, having done that for uh, you know a while, I wanted to do something else. I wanted to do something that was both a little more had a little more room for for 
creativity, a little more room for personal expression. Um, but you know, more importantly, and, and this is the real reason for doing the book, the intellectual reason, is that I wanted in uh, in some small way to try to make a difference. That you know, that I, I wanted to try to the extent that scholarship can actually make any kind of contribution um, to the world. I, I wanted to, to to try to write about something that that I thought was of genuine importance, and and to write in a way that I hoped would be accessible to a to a general audience as opposed again to academics so in in the choice of topic the 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 work on happiness um seemed obvious not only because it's what I had been working on for a decade but um and writing a bunch of these narrow peer-reviewed articles that I mentioned about but also because it seems to me that that this was touching on what is arguably the single most important and persistent question um, that we face in modern democratic politics, which is, you know, if we want to make the world a better place, if we want to make a world in which more people live happier and more fulfilling and rewarding lives, what kind of public policy regimes do we actually want to create? Uh, fundamentally, you know, there are only really two options available at the grandest level. Those are the, the political program of the left or the political program of the right. And so, you know, I wanted to, to the extent one can, to, to take the, what seems like a philosophical or ideological question, is left or right policies, which, which are better, to, to try to, to, to extract from that a, an empirical question, a question that we can actually answer with data using the same canons of, of, of evidence and proof and 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 so on that we would use in answering any other empirical question. Um, so you know the purpose of the book then is to try to apply the the the, the you know the, the the methods and the the protocols of reliability and validity of data and just the the general whole way in which we do social science to this question of what it is that that makes the world a better place insofar as we think of a happier world as a as a better world. So again, that was that was the impetus for the book was to try to sit back and to, to try to um, to to make a, a a comment as a scholar as opposed to as a, a partisan or an ideologue about a path towards by which uh, human beings might build a happier world. Mm-hmm. I want to do a, interrupt you there when you said um, try to make a difference and write for a popular audience, and the thought that occurred to me is. <laughs> That's just weird for an academic to do. Did they fire you? I mean, what happened? <laughs> well, not yet. Uh, we'll, we'll have to see. Yeah. That's a brave thing to do. Uh, I encourage other people to do it as well. Um, so let's get into the meat of the book. Uh, as you say, it's uh, to, to sort of it's about public policy in the, in the broadest sense, and and it's about the rights agenda program and the less uh, agenda program, as is defined mostly in the Western world. I, I don't know much about the non-Western world. Um, so the, the the big question, obviously, and I don't want to get stuck on it because we could, because uh, these discussions about happiness become word salad pretty fast. H- how do you measure human happiness? Well, we, we inevitably, in large-scale studies, end up using survey data. That is, so you essentially just ask people um, one or more different types of survey questions, which um, try to tap um, the extent to which they find life to be rewarding. The, there's a little cottage industry that's developed among scholars over really the last. 30 years or, or even longer uh, of trying to find what the exact best questions are and to test their 
their statistical properties and their conceptual validity to, you know, to make sure that we can actually do this. Right? It does seem on its face to some people, um, I, I think, a little odd to, to reduce something like happiness to a survey question. Um, but that's what we do, and I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest, and I can talk about some of that evidence if you want, that, that this is a sensible thing to do. The short version is that the most asked question is, is about life satisfaction, and it, the question is something very much like this. Uh, you ask um, something like, all things considered, or all things taken together, um, how satisfied are you with your life as a whole these days? Mm-hmm. And so you're, you're asking people to, to, to think about their life as a totality, um, not just today or this minute, but the totality of their life in general. How satisfied are you with that life? Um, and ask them to rate that on a scale from one to ten. Mm-hmm. And there are other variants. You can ask people to imagine the best possible life and the worst possible life to compare their life to that. You can simply ask them how happy they are. Um, and there, a bunch of other ways of, of asking the same question. And one of the ways in which we think that the questions make sense um, is that the answers all correlate very highly. And so you ask someone how satisfied they are, you get the, you know, the same kind of answers that you get if you ask them about the best versus worst possible life or how happy they are, or again, some other possible variants of asking the question. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm reminded of the false dichotomy. Is it better to be a happy pig or Socrates? And obviously it's better to be <laughs> A happy Socrates, right? That's not really complicated, <laughs> no, is it? Yeah, no, indeed. indeed. Uh, so, that would be the ideal. Yeah. I, uh, um, I, I, uh, I guess just to throw in my own two cents for no reason other than I want to do it is that it seems to me intuitively obvious that, that, that people know they're happy when they know they're happy. You know, in yeah, other words, I, yeah, I mean, it's just an intuition you have. Yes, I'm happy. Or just like you yeah. know something is wrong or you know something is beautiful. You really do know it. You know, yeah, exactly. Why you know it, it exactly, but you know it. And it's odd. Right at the moment you were saying that, I was scribbling down to myself. You know, people know how happy they are, Um, and then that's one of the the when push comes to shove in in this discussion about whether we can measure happiness using survey data. A lot of it comes down to whether people actually know whether they're happy or not. And then there's a lot of people who think that they don't. Right, (laughs) that people are too too whatever, too foolish to know how happy they are. But I think I agree emphatically with you that. You know, people yeah, do know how happy they are. I, I think they do. Yeah, I, I don't yeah think and any question they do. But they have this sort of intuitive feeling. You know, I mean, it's, it's not. It's very difficult to qualify, quantify, actually, but it is there. And there are lots of things like that in life that are there. Aesthetic judgment is one of them. Moral judgment is another. They exist, and and you have a yes. feeling about them, but they're very hard to. Uh, you know, they're a little bit hard to measure, but we know they're there. So anyway, let's get past that. So let's just say. Yes, you can affect. Uh, we know this thing exists, happiness. We know people can recognize it, and we can measure it. So, in setting up the um, the question, uh, left or right policies, uh, what, what factors did you take into account? Well, um, if I'm following you on the question, it's uh, it's a question of articulating what left versus right policies actually mean. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, I, there are, I set them up in two basic categories. One of them relates to the general size of government. 
um, which in turn is broken down into two categories, which how best to describe this. The one part is is within the size of government would is the the state's effort at the provision of public welfare, um, income maintenance programs, pensions, health care, um, all the kinds of, of services that we uh, want the government to provide, and that the the that are really directly sent to individuals. And and the second is a more general, vague, um, you know, the overall size of government, the footprint of of government as as measured, say, by the the percentage of taxes the government collects out of the economy. And mm-hmm. so you can imagine that the 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 government is bigger the larger the share of the economy that it that it consumes mm-hmm. or controls through taxation um so that you can think of uh I hate to use this word but a, a socialistic economy as being one in which the entire economy is politically which is to say democratically allocated mm-hmm. Right. So those two ideas on the size of government, the direct efforts at, gov- at government to, to provide um, for people who can't provide for themselves, what mm-hmm. we call welfare, and then the general overall footprint of, of the government in, in the economy. Mm-hmm. The other side of the coin is, is um, in the labor market, where I'm looking at labor market rules and regulations that affect say, the minimum wage, things that affect how um, workers relate to um, employers. And similarly, as part of this general rubric, the, the, the power of, of or the strength of, the, the, of organized labor as representatives of um, working people. Mm-hmm. And so it's labor and rules. Right. Uh, and then don't you also talk about the percentage of people in unions and things like this? Like, can I remember? Yeah, that? yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Exactly. So that's one of the. So yes, I'm looking at um, on the labor side. There's the the two empirically. We look at a cu- couple of different measures of of the amount of, of economic regulation of the labor market, and then we also look at at whether individuals mm-hmm. belong to labor unions, and then more importantly, the overall level of, of what we call labor union density, meaning the, the percentage of workers who belong to unions within the country. Mm-hmm. So then. And that, the, the, general yeah, plan, the, the general plan of the study is to survey people uh, across in, in, across various cohorts, and these are political cohorts, say U.S. states or foreign countries or countries right. in general, and then uh, see how well or poorly uh, these metrics, that is the one being uh, just generally sort of size of government and the other one sort of labor policy, how well or poorly they correlate with happiness. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, exactly. A slight elaboration of that would be, um, which it just extends the logic, is we, we, we create statistical models where we have something that we normally call the dependent variable, the thing that we're trying to explain, right. which in this case is happiness. And then we just create statistical models which 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 measure which measure the impact of of the political variables, the independent variables like the size of the state or the importance of the the labor union density on happiness while taking into account all the other things that we believe affect happiness, and then mm-hmm. we call those the, the control variables so we find say that that um, uh, Greater um, welfare spending causes greater levels of happiness, controlling for all the other stuff, which is thought to affect happiness, so as to isolate the effects of welfare spending on happiness. Right. And so we're not, yeah, so we're not talking about simple correlations. We're talking about um, pretty elaborate econometric models, which try to, uh, as best we can, to, to, to isolate the impact of, of the political factors on happiness and to eliminate 
um, um, alternate explanations so that we're as confident as we can be that, that we found a, a, a causal relationship as opposed to merely a, a correlation. Right. So are you, you're, I don't remember this terminology very well, but you're trying to extract confounding variables. Is that right? Yeah. 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 So just to give an example, just so people will understand, you have a country and you notice that there's a really strong correlation between the size of the government and happiness. But then you also find out that that country is heavily Catholic. And we know that Catholicism also correlates heavily internationally with happiness. So then you need to parse that out. Yeah, exactly. You want to, you want to, and Catholicism may associate, may also correlate with size of government, right? So oh, yeah, there you, you try go. To, yeah. yeah, exactly. So you're trying to separate out the the effect of of a Catholic political culture, say, uh, uh, with the um, size of government per se, to make sure that what you're not picking up is some kind of residual effect of Catholicism um, that is being expressed through uh, econometrically through a, a variable on that reflects the size. And and you can do that because you have lots of observations. That is, there are lots of countries and there are lots of U.S. states. Yes. So you see lots of variety so you can actually control for the variables. Yeah. If you only only had two, you'd be in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) That would be much more difficult. That would be very bad. That would be very bad for the study. So I think we understand it now, uh, exactly what we're doing. And so let's move on to the most interesting part of of the book, and that is what you found. And we can begin with these uh, variables about size of government, that is uh, sort of uh, the public degree of public welfare spending, I guess, and um, the footprint of the government in terms of uh, the percent of the tax base, which is um, taken up by the government. Right. Well, basically, you find very uh, consistent relationships. So uh, in the the chapter in the book that discusses the size of the state, I think there are seven different empirical indicators that reflect the the two dimensions that we just talked about. So there's, you know, in, in part to just to, to build the preponderance of evidence, you, you you don't rely just on a single indicator of something complicated, difficult to measure. You come up with one or two or three different measures of every different concept. So, you know, we've got seven variables representing these two different concepts, measuring things in different ways. And the results are all are incredibly consistent and tell a very similar story. And that story is easily summarized, which is that the the political program of the left, as, as suggested by greater welfare spending, greater total government spending, greater tax burden, just big government in general, um, uniformly across all of the models, controlling for every conceivable counter-explanation, counter has a positive and statistically significant impact on, on well-being, and on happiness. Implying, in other words, that the, it's the, the you know, big government, the welfare state, these things um, make the world a, a happier place. Um, and in, in that limited sense, I mean, you know, vindicate the, 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 the progressive or social democratic approach to politics. Mm-hmm. And just as a, and a, uh, just to elaborate that just a little bit, um, what we see is that this relationship holds up in general, whether we analyze the data at the level of individuals or we use as a unit of analysis, as we say, the, the national means. So in other words, we can look at, the, at, at models where we have 58,000 people across 20 countries, or we can look at um, models where we have just 20 countries um, using average happiness, and you get the exact same results. You also get the exact same results when you start breaking down the population into subgroups. 
So for instance, the positive effect of the welfare state on happiness is about the same for low as high income people, a little bit more for low income, but not a lot, not nearly as much as one might expect. And also the differences between men and women are very small. Um, differences between almost any um, subgroup um, are, are, are small or non-existent. The, the main takeaway point that I find here is, is to reiterate a point made by Thomas Paine, among many other people, which is this, that, that uh, uh, an egalitarian society, a, a society which takes care of um, the, 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 the working class and the poor, which, which tries to eliminate um, as much as possible inequality and so on, produces a world in which everyone is better off. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, we're not we're not doing Robin Hood. We're not right. um, at least in happiness. We're not redistributing happiness. Uh, we may be redistributing money, but we're not redistributing happiness. We're not taking away from some people to give to others. Right. So, a couple of questions. Um, Please. One of them is how big is the effect overall? Well, it, it varies a little bit by. Um, you know, variable to variable and model to model, and then it's difficult to express um, in, in absolute terms because happiness, of course, isn't something like dollars where I could give you a dollar amount. But the the typical way we would compare things is by using a benchmark. So, in other words, you'd say that the the impact of say being unemployed on happiness is usually considered the the most powerful thing that makes someone unhappy: being unemployed mm-hmm. or being married getting married, which is considered to be one of the strongest positive impacts in, in the opposite direction, of course. I, w- I want to make a joke uh, about that, but I'm not going <laughs> yeah, to. The, the pos- possibility for jokes is too, too broad. We have to just to declare a truce there and go on. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but so if you use those as benchmarks, the, 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 the difference in the political factors is enormous. It dwarfs those by orders of magnitude. So mm-hmm. in other words, the, the difference between imagine the different the difference in the quality of someone's life of you know finding love of of, of being married of having a good mm-hmm. marriage that enormous improvement in their quality of life yeah. um, or the quality improvement of your life that comes from ending a period of long term unemployment those things are are much smaller than the mm-hmm. differences between living in the most social democratic country say Sweden or Denmark. And in the least demo- the least social democratic countries. That's really so, interesting. Yeah, that, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. So it's a large effect. It's it's a massive effect. Yeah, compared I mean, to I, ordinary life events, which we think of as making you happy and unhappy. This yeah, precisely. Massive, yeah, this is a massive. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. exactly. And if I could just to maybe just to press that point just a, a little bit, it's the 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 primacy of politics is what you know, strikes me here is uh, personally so uh, telling, which is that, that we think of happiness primarily as something that, that is an individual level phenomenon. That sure, the background of, of of the society in which you live and events that are taking place are going to affect you, but presuming you live in a stable, relatively prosperous country, not you know, you're not dealing with a war or, or an economic depression if in ordinary times, we would think of the sort of background of life as, as being comparatively unimportant to the to the individual level stuff going on in your day to day life the the research seems to suggest that you know the the political conditions um, shape your day to day life in in subtle ways that 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 are not so immediately apparent and and you know that that the structure of society um, 
as determined by public policies, you know, affect people's lives in, in again in these kind of insidious ways, if you, if I can use that word, in these mm-hmm. in these um, subtle and complex ways. Mm-hmm. That's, that's that's really fascinating. Actually, I would not have expected that. I really would no, not I, have. That is counterintuitive. Did you expect that? I didn't expect the 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 the, the degree of uh, of the effect. No, the magnitudes are are startling even yeah. to me. Yeah. So another couple of questions about just that size of government variable. I'd like to hear about outliers. Are there places in which there are really big governments and really unhappy people, and then really small governments and really happy people? Yeah, there, I mean, one of the one of the things I'm always at pains to do in the book is is to deal with 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 um, objections or counter arguments and so on. Um, there's a section in an appendix to one of the chapters which I talks about um, two countries, I think Ireland and Switzerland, which on paper are. Superficially seem to to break the pattern. In other words, they're both countries with modest-sized welfare states, um, and 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 so on, um, but are on much happier than you might expect them to be. Mm-hmm. Given that the you know the analysis goes through and talks about why some of those reasons are, um, you know, the short version is I don't think that they uh, actually emerge as as outliers when you take into account um, all of the, the situations. And, and particularly if you look at what happened to those countries when they uh, you know, are changing um, their, um, you know, their, their welfare systems. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then sad yeah. people with big governments. I mean, the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. I used to live there, so I can tell you that I've been one of them. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's another good point. I'm, I'm, I'm purposely limiting my analysis to, to, to the industrial democracies yeah. uh-huh. of Western Europe, North America, the Pacific, uh-huh. um, as a methodological strategy, you mm-hmm. know, precisely to avoid. Um, Applying the argument to countries to which it doesn't apply. Right. right. You want to, you know, fair, you know, and that's fair. You want to compare likes with likes. You know, yeah, exactly. You know, I, mean, right? I mean, the the key, whole key to the argument is that the government isn't just big, yeah. but the government is is responsible to citizens. That it's a it's a real democracy. Yeah. See, the Soviet government was not responsible to its citizens. <laughs> no, no, to say the least. So that should not be included in your comparison. Um, right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, you know. <laughs> You know, Cambodia under Paul Pot. No, I don't think we're going to include them. <laughs> no, I yeah. certainly hope not. Yeah. So anyway, let's move on to the second big set of variables, and that's about labor. And this includes the degree of regulation, uh, and right? Then, and then the sort of degree of participation in in unions. And here we're talking about real regulation and real unions, not the kind they had in the Soviet Union. <laughs> right. Exactly. Sorry. Another. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, right. So yeah. go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, well, so the analysis uh, on regulation, I use two different variables. One is something created by the the Fraser Institute, which, like the Heritage Foundation, is a conservative think tank, which, to its credit, produces a lot of very professional um, analysis and produces a lot of very uh, professional data. One of the things that they produce is an index of what they call freedom in the world, economic freedom in the world, and they produce a bunch of of indicators um, uh, in in that vein. Uh, I use their indicator of, of freedom in the labor market, meaning the absence of labor market regulations. I also use a, a, an indicator of, of something that the Europeans are very keen on called Employment Protection Legislation, or EPL, um, which is a, a measure essentially of how, how easy it is to, to, 
to fire people um, and the, the 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 rules of of what people are covered under those rules that make it difficult to to fire people. Um, the the economic freedom thing is sort of complicated to to discuss. I could I could go into the details, but the short version is that the both of these indices measure the extent to which workers are protected in labor markets in sort of the ways that I think we intuitively understand what being protected by the government means. Uh, the the uh, Fraser Institute thing includes, for instance, things like the minimum wage and, and so on. So what you find for both of these indicators is basically the same results as before, that the the the, the less economic freedom there is, uh, meaning the more economic regulation, the happier people are, and the more employment protection legislation there is, the happier people are. And that, again, holds up when you break down um, things uh, into high and low-income people, men and women, and, and so on. Um, so, I mean, that's uh, – you, know, you don't need to – one doesn't need to spend a lot of time thinking about what those results mean. I, they're pretty transparent. You know, the more – the more the democratic state intervenes in the relationship between workers um, and employers in ways that are consistent with the interests of workers, um, we seem to, to to create situations in which just about everyone is is happier. You know, and, and you can imagine why that would be. People tend to face, um, particularly working class people, as opposed to professionals, tend tend to face workers. Um, sorry face their employers in a in a p- subordinate position right they're 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 not uh, able to make um, uh, decisions about how work is organized about safety in the workplace they're certainly not able to make decisions about whether they're going to be fired or dismissed at any given time about severance packages and all that kinds of things it, to the extent you create laws which protect everyone as workers you it seems the data would suggest that that we're moving towards creating a world in which you know people are happier. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, in the on the labor union side, the the results are, are again fairly straightforward. I'm focusing I, again on two things. One is is one an in, is one as an individual a member of a union, and the results suggest that again controlling for all other factors. Um, People who belong to labor unions are happier than others. The magnitude of the relationship there is not enormous. It's uh, it's it's you know uh, it, it it doesn't it's not in the same order of magnitude as the other factors we discussed, but it's statistically significant. The, the main point that emerges is is the importance of labor union density. Again, meaning the the strength of the labor movement as as measured by the percentage of people who belong to unions. So. Essentially, what you find is that as labor union density increases, people are happier, and that this again applies um, not only to high and low income people, but also to people who belong to unions and people who don't. Right. So I'll say that again, it, just to be clear. Yeah, a strong labor movement. If you live in a country where Scandinavian countries say where. 80% of workers may belong to a labor union compared to a country like the United States where, I don't know, 12% or, or so of people belong to unions. Um, if you live in the high-density country, the, the Scandinavian country, um, everyone is going, nearly everyone is going to be happier. Mm-hmm. Right? People who belong to unions and people who don't, rich people and poor people, men and women, um, and so on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I see. Okay. So again, so the effects. You've talked about how strong the effect is, and it's pretty strong. Yes. It, yeah. Okay. Th this this effect is again the the density effect is is similar to the the effects I described before okay. for the size of the state. Right. And then do you find outliers again? Can you talk about any outliers? You said you mentioned uh, <laughs> you mentioned Ireland and Switzerland last time. Are there yeah. Any? Actually, I don't I don't think there are statistically mm -hmm. any outliers within the analysis. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Well, that's you know, that's what you found. That's what you found. That's the great thing about data. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's what you found. <laughs> so um, you have a really interesting uh, chapter on the American states, and and the thing I, I read it with these eyes, like which state should I live in? <laughs> <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about which states sort of rate high on happiness and why, and if the whole model works within the American states? Yeah, well, the the the, the short version is the model does work. I mean, I've replicated as much as I could um, the analysis from the prior chapters, which, is, as you pointed out, are, are across countries and, and across time, um, and in, instead shifted the unit of analysis here to looking across the American states. So we're essentially treating the American states as if they were countries and looking for the same kind of relationships. Mm -hmm. um, and generally, you know, you have to map, try to find equivalent indicators to the cross-national ones, which don't map perfectly. But well, I have four basic political um, variables, which I think are interesting. And the first is just welfare payments. Um, the second is another another measure of economic regulation, another one of these measures of, of, of so-called economic freedom. Those show exactly the same relationships as cross-nationally. More, more welfare spending means happier people, um, more economic regulation means happier people. Mm -hmm. uh, and then two other variables which are very, are unique to the United States. I looked at the ideology of governments. There's a measure of people come up with, you know, the, the, the government in Oregon in 1986 is uh, put on a metric where it's, you know, its ideology is, you know, a, a given numeric value. Um, and also the the amount of democratic party control of state legislatures. So in essence, looking at the liberalism of, of state governments and also the party control of state governments. And what one finds is that um, states with a history of, of rule by liberal governments are happier and states with a history of rule by the Democratic Party are happier. A recent um, history, meaning you know, since 1970. Mm -hmm. And that's also, I mean, we should say again that you considered other variables. And those yes, were, so those all were of accounted for. Correct. So in all of these models um, that I've discussed, you you always have a set of of control variables where you're trying to again to um, control for all the other stuff that might affect um, well-being. So you know, for instance, in the um, I'm looking at, at the book at one of the tables for looking at the effect of of Democratic Party control on um, satisfaction with life. There's a set of control variables which include, I, I can just read some of them, um, one's income, one's satisfaction with one's income, one's education, whether one is unemployed, gender, the number of children ones have, a series of variables for demographic factors like um, um, uh, race, um, age, um, whether one is widowed, divorced, married, how often they attend church, how much trust they have in other people, their individual health, and then a whole set of variables that uh, uh, try to control for the 
the, the, the structure of the state in which they live, the racial diversity of the state, the state population, state income, and so on. Mm-hmm. So you're trying to separate out all of these other things that could possibly be affecting um, happiness within a state besides the political factors that we're discussing. Mm-hmm. I see. So that's an important thing. Yeah, I mean, you considered other things. I was thinking, like, you know, did you consider the average length of the day in winter? Because I have people in the northern no, part, northern I, 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 part of the I have it myself, but other people have actually done. There's a small little uh, set of research on climate and and related things where you, yeah. you might think that people living in say, Southern California are yeah. happier than people in Minnesota. Iceland. Uh, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, okay, well I just wanted to oddly. That. Yeah, because um, we yeah. do talk about it that way. We we say you know, I don't know if it's true or not, but we do. So um, th- this is all fascinating, and I, I think it is. Uh, it is a. I don't even know if this is a word, but I remember from philosophy class, dispositive. Is that a word? It means like, I think you've shown this to be true. This is an actual <laughs> thing. Um, well, I hope so. Yes, I think that's right. But let me play uh, uh, a conservative for a moment. And, and, and uh, not the Stephen Colbert dumb kind, but I, I think <laughs> the, um, the, the uh, 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 you know, the Edmund Burke sort of smart kind. And I have a couple of different you know, questions, which I think a conservative, somebody in the Republican Party who was a thinking person, um, would ask about this. Um, and, and one of them uh, has to do with happiness as a political goal. And I could sort of set it up like this. Um, it, it may be the case that um, markets don't do everything we want them to. Uh, they, they do a good job, and you say this many times in the book, that they do a great job of spurring innovation. They do a great job of producing uh, high levels of productivity and more or less the fair distribution of, of goods. You know, it's not perfect, uh-huh. but we don't know any better mechanism to do this, and we've tried. And you say that exactly. again and again in the book. I just have to say that. You know, you're not saying that we should go to the barricades and say all property is theft and uh, nationalized stuff. No, <laughs> exactly. I, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a friend of the market economy. Yes, right. You say that many times, and I think that's good. So let's just say, okay, that's right. This is the best way to do this. And you could actually uh, use the state to increase. I'll just say this is true, me conservative, that you could use the state to actually raise the level of happiness. But you could only do so at the cost of the... Um, what is the word I'm looking for, at the cost of the comparative strength of the American economy in the future in the international context. Whether you think the American economy should be bridled or not is one thing. The international economy is never going to be. And if, mm-hmm. we, don't, if we don't really hit the market hard, that is to say if we don't keep people innovating in this way, we're going to fall behind the Chinese, the Germans, and everybody else, and we're going to suffer in the long term. So now is not the time to be spending our money on happiness. Now is the time to get to work. Um, well, it's certainly an interesting argument, and, and, and frankly, a more intelligent one than 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 <laughs> I typically get as a as a critique of this work. Uh, I, I guess I would say that um, if the issue were one of a, a, a long term investment to ensure long term happiness for everyone um, versus short term um, happiness, yeah, that's, that's well that's well stated actually. That's yeah, well. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's what it, I meant. It, okay, well, I, I think you were clear. Anyway, if, if that were the trade-off, then you know, I think every any rational person would have to be on the side of let's skip the short fix and go for the long run. I, I guess I'm not sure that there's any reason to think two things. Uh, one is I'm not sure there's any reason to think that there 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 is that 
trade-off. Um, the other is that I'm not sure how that trade-off could possibly be made in an economy that is completely unregulated or unplanned. In other words, if you leave the market entirely to itself, it's not going to do things like invent the internet. Right. That that took the government to do. Yep. Um, you know, you these kinds of massive long-term. Um, uh, investments in, in, a, in a country's future take place in some kind of partnership between between business and, and, and government and labor. They, they don't just occur spontaneously. And one of, one of the one of the faults in um, in, in free market thinking, um, which is one of its advantages in other ways, is this idea that there's always a, a spontaneous order that the market will produce. Um, and as you said, the market does a lot of things wonderfully, but but it doesn't do coordination all that well. Mm-hmm. And so you, you, again, you, you but what you have the problem of of the collective goods problem externalities, all these kinds of things you you know learn in economics 101 that you, you actually need governments to solve mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and if I could just I mean, I'm babbling but just to return to the to the first point um, on whether such a trade-off is necessary one of the things I'm at pains to do again in one of the appendices of the chapters is is look at the arguments that investments in in the welfare state or the or the size of government or e, or even labor unions um, have deleterious long-term consequences on on economic growth uh, I'm not really an economist uh, I'm sort of a consumer of that literature although I do some econometric modeling of it you know it seems to me that the the evidence that uh, government spending, say, um, reduces um, long-term economic performance is incredibly weak mm-hmm. at, at best. If you look at what are the most prosperous countries in the world, there are places like Denmark and and, and Sweden um, and Finland, and those places not only have giant welfare states, but they also have incredibly, um, you know, they're incredibly pro-business places to, to be. They, they appear consistently in, in rankings like by Forbes and other places in the, you know, the best countries in the world to do business. It's not like there's a trade off between these things always you know mm-hmm. you, you can you can have a a, a a big welfare state and still have a highly vibrant uh, and pro-business economy yeah well i mean that really is the empirical question and i think that even me the shadow conservative um would agree that the thing that we need to find out about we need to know the degree to which the kind of government spending which is necessary to produce a welfare state that makes happy people is a detriment to long-term economic growth i don't know I really don't. So yeah, well, you know. I don't think anybody really knows, but yeah. uh, I, I, you know, I'm pretty confident that, that the doom and gloom idea that the welfare state must produce these kinds of negative consequences mm-hmm. isn't true. Not only because of you know all kinds of data analysis done in peer-reviewed journals by very high-profile people who know what they're doing, but also just the the, the visible, livable experience. If anyone's ever been to Western Europe, to Northern Europe in particular, you know you 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 see the kind of world that we're talking about. It's not a it's not a fictional world we're trying to create. It's one that is tangible. It's here. It's there. It's it's both uh, again a uh, you know a pl- places with People, where people are happier, where they live longer, and where they have also have a better economy than we have. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. it's not it, it, there isn't that trade-off. Yeah, I mean, you can it's, actually go see it. I encourage all listeners probably have, but go see it. Go to France for a while. They live pretty well over there. Yeah, <laughs> in most indeed. places they do pretty well. <laughs> yeah, and it's not fiction. <laughs> exactly. So, I love America. It's my favorite place. But come on, it's pretty good over there. You know, people don't go to vacation to like Cleveland. 
<laughs> I love Cleveland too, you know, go Browns. Um, but, but they don't go to Cleveland for vacation. So, uh, so that, that's a pragmatic uh, counter argument that a conservative might make. I want to work. I want to go to another counter argument that a conservative might make. And this one has to do with American political tradition, sort of who we are. I'm just speaking about Americans now, not other people. Um, one of the striking things about your book was how hard I think you found it, and I may be wrong about this, to express what you were talking about in terms of liberal policy in a way that didn't just poison the argument from the beginning. Because the minute you say big government, that phrase to Americans, the hair on the back of their neck goes up. They just can't yeah. help it. You know, you say unions for many Americans, hair in the back of their neck goes up. And, you know, no, I, this I, just isn't, you know, this is just part of our political culture. It's who we are. We don't do these things. It's embedded in our language. So, but wait, I mean, it's one more thing. Now, even if you could get rid of that problem, the language problem, you could find suitably neutral terms that Americans would success. I mean, what it would, would accept. There's still kind of this general notion, you know, that we're the land of liberty. And we don't do this. This just isn't the way we do things. Who cares about happiness? It's just not us. I mean, I, you know, lots of nations have political customs, and this is one of ours. And it's just never going to work. We'll never go for it. Um, yeah, I, yeah, no, I'm with you. I, th I think there's two things there. The the second part, uh, you just said in passing, who cares about happiness? That's not us. I, I guess I don't think, I, I think, I, I don't think that, is really part of the American. I don't know. I can tell you weren't raised a Lutheran in Kansas. <laughs> let me tell you what. Lutherans do not care about happiness. So, well, uh, fair enough. But but Thomas Jefferson did. He did, yeah. And, yeah, and I, I grew up reading the Declaration of Independence, and um, you know, I think the idea of the you know the pursuit of happiness is you know every every school kid in America has yeah. that burned into uh -huh. his brain for for life. So I, I think Americans do care about happiness. But you're absolutely right about the the wider point that you're making is. That that you know that the big government, uh, however you want to call it, it, it is uh, in some sense an infringement on uh, you know this sort of uh, rugged individualist whole free market I, uh, you know ideal. Um, you know this is not who Americans are. This is socialistic or you know communistic or um, just. You know, whatever you want to call it, um, I would call it un-American. I mean, un-American, exactly. Un-American is what it is. It's Perfect. Not American. Um, exactly. And uh, I, my response is is a very simple one, and this is sort of what I'm working on here in in, in the Netherlands at the Roosevelt Study Center, it, it, which is devoted to a, a European library for the papers of of FDR. It, is that this is exactly the arguments that were made um, about the New Deal which everyone now accepts and there's practically no one um uh who wants to uh you know get rid of social security and, and medicare and and so on the these are in, or, or with 40 hour work week and so on these are all just embedded within the american psyche and you know, the same arguments were made about them that you know they're un-american they're, they're socialists they're they're just not what we do as you put it um and you know i, I we we fought that battle before. Uh, we'll, we may fight it again if if the Democratic Party finds the will to do. Um, you know, but it, uh, it does remind me of Edmund Burke in, in the sense of clinging to, to tradition and a, and a sort of yeah. national uh, national identity. But uh, but 
you know, I, I think Americans more than anything else are pragmatists. You know, if you think about American political philosophy, especially in the 20th century, it's, it's, it's all pragmatism. And, um, we're not, we're not ideologues. We're not, um, a country of, of, uh, we want, we, we, you know, Americans want to get things done. Right. We, we, we want to live in a world in which you know people are happy, in which we live in a, a world in which we're we're safe uh, from 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 crime and the other pathologies which come from deprivation and so on that that the welfare state helps create. I, I think if if people thought um, could be convinced that um, uh, big government will create a world in which everyone is better off, that Americans would um, be open to that argument if it's articulated to them in an intelligent way. Which I'm, admit them. <laughs> I'm just required. Yeah. I'm reminded that you know I've, people misread Burke all the time. I'm a big fan of Burke, and I, I, one of the things they misread is he said, "Don't change anything." But what he actually said was, he said, "Yeah, obviously things are going to need to be changed, but the trick is to do it slowly, and while you change them, call them old." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds like Burke. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm a fan too. Yeah, <laughs> you know, d- definitely don't say you're doing something brand new. People won't like that. Call them yes. old, and you know, try to. This is an American tradition to do this. You know, that's and that might work. You know, but I mean, I think the pragmatic Burkean response is if you go too quickly, people are going to really bridle against this, and it's going to cause more harm than good. I don't see any evidence of that. But that's what well, but, but even if, even if that were true, I mean, we're talking about uh, we're not talking about reinventing the wheel or or some radical departure in in, in the world in which we live. We're just talking about marginal changes yeah. in existing programs. Yeah. So, you know, you you want to create a a bigger welfare state. Um, you know, I know Americans hate the word welfare state too. Yeah. Social safety net, use that word better, or you know, whatever it is you want to do, you want to you know create greater protections for workers in the workplace. Well, you know, we we have OSHA. We we understand what what these things are. Stiffening them a little bit, making them progressively a little a little better, and creating um, you know more opportunities for labor unions here and there. Just you know, we're we're not again talking about a radical transformation of society necessarily. We're talking about just moving along a path which takes us you know more. The more we move towards sort of a New Deal ideal as opposed to a Tea Party ideal, according to my research, we're going to end up with happier mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, sure. Okay. So let's go on to a third, and this is my final. Uh, uh, shadow, uh, shadow conservative uh, objection. I don't know if it's an objection, but thing to think about. And, and this one, so the first one was pragmatic. The second one had to do with uh, American political tradition and, and it's sort of the way in which this might or might not fit with it. The third one is, is even more global than that. And it says, it's basically a moral objection. And that is that um, people have the right not to have their stuff taken by the government and uh, as a matter of paternalism, it is not healthy for people to have things given to them. It turns them into something they should not be. They, are, they don't become fully articulated humans when you just start giving them stuff. So it is morally wrong to do these things. And it doesn't matter whether it makes them happy or not. You know, again, you, you could hear somebody in a kind of parody argument saying you could give them Soma and they'd be happy. Right. But we're right. not going to do that. Right. So anyway. Well, I hope not. <laughs> um, yeah, I see your point, and it's and, you know it's certainly a reasonable point and and a good one. Um, but I guess you know let me respond. And in, in the first point is you know we people have a right not to have stuff taken from them. Well, I mean that primarily means people have a right not to be taxed. Um, 
and obviously, you know, we we don't have a right not to be taxed. We are taxed. It's just a question. Everyone agrees with that. It's just a question of how much are we going to be taxed, and more importantly, who is going to be taxed. And so, you know, to 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 pay for, um, say, to make Social Security solvent for the next 50 years, all you'd have to do is eliminate the cap on um, the amount of money that that people have for which they're taxed under Social Security. So right now it's something like $110,000. Eliminate the cap, the higher people, uh, people making more money would pay more taxes and suddenly Social Security is fixed. So, uh, you know, also I guess on the idea that we don't have a right to have stuff taken from us, if you read Jefferson, you know, he enumerates, um, you know, our some of our natural rights, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He, he doesn't include um, in their property um, as a one of our natural rights. He doesn't include a market economy as one of our natural rights. He, in fact, has famously changed Locke's characterization of life, liberty, and estates, meaning wealth, um, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So he's almost excluding in, in the founding document of our country, really, that this idea that you have a, some sort of absolute right not to participate in society. That's because he was but, a Freemason. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it was a lot of things, yeah. but yeah. Never so, mind. you know, go I think, I, and, and going back to, to the whole tra- social contract tradition is that if you live in a society, you have to contribute to the maintenance of that society. Yeah. Okay. And, but, and I'm sorry, just on giving people things, most people, you know, the, the, <laughs> I would say two things. We give people lots of stuff without thinking of it as a giveaway. We give children an education. We give people who are being attacked by uh, thugs on the street police protection. You know, we, we give things to people who we view as members of society who are deserving to receive them. In Western Europe, a lot of people have the view that you know, if if you've lost, uh, if you don't have a job through no fault of your own, you have a right to to be uh, to receive benefits from society until you can find such a job, right? That 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 you know, if if that that um, children are a a, a a asset of society, and that 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 in many West European countries, um, you, you receive a, a, a what's called a family allowance. And everybody, regardless of income, gets a check from the government um, for a certain amount of money per child. And, and you know, if, if that's giving people stuff, uh, you know, count me in. Uh-huh, yeah. I, I think those are the kinds of things that, that we need to be giving people. And as we extend the kinds of things that we think people deserve because they're members of society, uh, you know, I think we make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think that's, you know, I can agree with most of that. I can. Again, these aren't positions which I necessarily hold. I just thought them up as somebody who was <laughs> This, these are reasonable counter arguments. No, I think they're entirely reasonable. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. But I mean, I think the debate about these things is actually quite healthy in the United States. And I, I, I would say that, I mean, I like the subtitle of your book, How Voters' Choices Determine the Quality of Life. I think Americans are deciding now. And, and they're pretty much deciding very slowly to move in this direction. Yeah, that seems to be the seems to be the trend. I think it is slow, and it's not going to be um, you know with, without bumps in the road. But that seems to be the direction in which things are moving. And, and in that sense, we're simply catching up, um, you know, to the rest of the, the Western world. Yes, yeah, so you can't put it that way and make it fly. <laughs> no, it's true. Can't it we, like that. we can't be more like Europe. No, no, we have to be you know reviving something that the founding fathers taught us. 
that'll get yeah. done definitely. You know, no, charity. No, you're right. It's one of the cha- it's one of the you know great uh, sort of principles of our founding fathers. We have to bring it to life in a social welfare program. That's something I can get behind because it's American with a capital A. Count you know? me in. <laughs> yeah, count me in too. <laughs> um, that's good. I have a couple other questions. One is, uh, I think we exchanged. There may have been an email exchange business. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> was it hard to get this book published? I'm sorry, say again? Was it hard to get this book published? Um, in other words, I've reached in the reviews. That is not only the reviews that have come out in sort of magazines and such, but also when they sent it out to be reviewed by your colleagues. Because, you know, if somebody read this book uh, unsensitively, let's put it that way, or just with sort of blinders on, they would say, well, this is just leftist pap. Well, <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I like to think that it's not leftist. Well, it isn't. Plastic. That's what I'm saying. It isn't. I'm right. saying if you, if you looked at the book, yeah. you could think, oh, well, no, it's, no way. This is not going to, yeah. Well, one of the, one one of the advantages of of the of you know the peer reviewed university publishing process is that, relatively speaking, standards of of you know professionalism apply. So, um, you know, you can't make just simply ideological arguments. And, and given that, uh, you know, the book is an actual work of scholarship, which which conforms to scholarly standards and so on, I think the book got um, a fair review. It was published by Cambridge, which right. is arguably the leading press. It, um, it was accepted. Yeah. And it's Cambridge is, um, yeah, I think Cambridge is probably... folks over there. They sponsor our podcast. I can tell you that. <laughs> Well, no, they really are very serious folks. I wouldn't have them as a sponsor if they weren't. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah. Uh, but, well, then tell me about the, how it's been received. I mean, by, by uh, people, you know. You know so far, the they they haven't received the kind of um, negative responses that I expected. I mean, the book's gotten some. You know, I've been on national public radio. I've been on. You know, had some things. The book has been covered in the L.A. Times and the Washington Post, and mm-hmm. I had uh, some opinion pieces. And it, it hasn't generated the kind of uh, vitriolic um, response that, that that I might have expected. Which I and I'm, I'm not sure what that means. I don't know whether to be encouraged or whether to think that the book is simply being ignored. <laughs> Um, well, you know, in a so, way, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I mean, in a way, when I read it, and I'm pretty conservative, I'll tell you that, I, the punchline, the thing I took away from the book was, it's pretty safe to reduce some of the insecurity, which is inherent in markets. That really is what yeah. I got out of it. And that's it. That it's yeah, yeah. things that I was a little bit afraid of, actually, I shouldn't be afraid of. It's okay to take some of the instability and insecurity out of markets, and the sky won't fall. Yeah, I, I may I mean, borrow that characterization <laughs> yeah. from you. Yeah. I mean, that's really what that's I got the, out of it. I was like, yeah, well, okay, I'll sure, all right. It might not be so bad if we had real welfare here in the United States because other people have it, and they seem to be pretty happy with it. And, and you know, the sky didn't fall. Because really that's what we're talking about is reducing insecurity in life. I mean, I've – you know, I've had periods of unemployment and periods where I didn't have insurance and these kind of things. And I can't say they made me feel really good. <laughs> they, they just yeah. didn't. Uh, and, and would I have liked to have had something to fall back on? Yeah. Do I think that I should carry my own weight? Absolutely. Absolutely. Sure. You know, I mean, I, I didn't I do not like to receive help from other people. I, I don't want to be on welfare. I, I really don't. And uh, but, you know, in my time of need, would I want something? Yeah. And do I know people who really benefit from these programs? absolutely do. And I know some of them would be dead without them, at least a couple. So, you know, these global issues like, you know, it kind of reminds me, and it reminds me a little bit of actually the, the 
the, the gay marriage debate. You know, if you allow gay people to get married, will the sky fall? Well, we've done it now and it didn't. Right. You know, well, and similarly here, can you reduce the insecurity of the market and will the sky fall? Well, we've, we've done it now and it didn't. Yeah, well, okay, we exactly. can proceed now. Okay, we know. Now. Okay, we're done. We ran the experiment. It worked. Let's go. Okay, we're done now. All right, let's move on to other things. Okay? That's really what I got out of the book. I'm like, it did change my mind about it. I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. Um, well, I changed someone's mind. Yeah, well, you know, I think my mind was kind of made up about certain things. But I, I, I was concerned about this issue about whether, you know, if, if you really transfer a lot of income or create these huge programs, that, you know, will it do something to people's character? Will it, will it diminish economic growth? Uh, you know, what will happen to America? American political tradition? Is it the slippery slope to socialism and you know, blah, blah, blah? Um, but it isn't. <laughs> well, it doesn't seem to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it isn't any of those things. So that's why I say I really like, I really like that part of the book. Because you do try to be neutral. I mean, it's hard, but you do do a good job of it. You, you, know, you give the evidence, and like, this is the evidence, and you know, make it what you want. Um, well, thank you. I, I did try to be respectful of, of you know, the conservative point of view, which, which on the and which I'm, you know, not personally sympathetic to politically, but which intellectually I'm, uh, I'm very interested in. I mean, there are compelling the whole, the conservative um, view of the world. I think is, is a compelling one and one that we have to take seriously. Well, see, and that's why I think I, I would say the same thing about myself. Is I'm not particularly, I, I guess, you know, sort of sympathetic to to most liberal uh, act. I guess politics. But I am very interested in what people who are liberal have to say, and if they show me something that's true that I didn't know before, I'm not going to say I don't like it because they're liberal. That's dumb. Right. Right. <laughs> so, exactly. and, and you know, I read this book and I'm like, oh, I just learned something. There we go. So we can proceed now. <laughs> that's something I don't have to worry about anymore. So anyway, uh, Ben, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been really fun talking to you. And um, let me close the interview by asking you our traditional final question. That is, what are you working on now? Um, I'm doing two things. One is a, an entirely fun project, which is um, years ago I wrote a book on Zen. I'm writing a, a follow-up to that, which I'm just getting started on in my free time. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the main thing I'm working on is a, is a follow-up to, the, to the, the book we've just been talking about, which um, is a little more historical in nature. I, I alluded to it um, a moment ago. One of the reasons I'm here at the Roosevelt Study Center is I'm going back and doing a comparison of, of political opposition to the New Deal, the arguments made for and against it, um, to this arguments being made now, you know, for and against Obamacare and for and against Tea Party mm -hmm. policies and austerity and so on, and trying to um, look at the similarities and, and the differences um, between the, the the public debate um, that took place during those two times. Mm -hmm. Well, good luck on that project. I hope we can have you on again. Well, thank you very much. I look forward to that. So let me tell everybody that we've been talking to Ben Radcliffe about his terrific book, The Political Economy of Human Happiness, How Voters' Choices Determine the Quality of Life, that I loved, even though I didn't want to love it. It's <laughs> <laughs> the highest compliment. Yeah, I thought it was great. I think you should go read it. So let me say first, Ben, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. All right. And let me tell everybody who listens to this podcast, thank you as well for listening to the New Books Network. And I hope that you are back with us next week. Bye-bye.